Hey, I'm Eric Torenberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. This week's episode is with none other than Donald Rumsfeld. Donald is the former Secretary of Defense for the U.S., and at the tender age of 83, has recently released an app. Yep, a solitaire game inspired by Winston Churchill. We talk about the app, lessons learned over his career, thoughts about succeeding in both in politics and in business, how he thinks about the future, and much, much more. All right, here's Donald. Hey, Mr. Rumsfeld, it's, a, it's an honor. Thank you for coming on the Product Hunt podcast. Well, I'm happy to do it. You've, uh, you've taken the tech world by storm recently, uh, having launched an app at 83, Churchill Solitaire. Uh, tell us why this app and why now? Well, back in 1974, uh, a man taught me this Winston Churchill Solitaire game. He was a Belgian diplomat, and uh, he learned it from Winston Churchill when the government of Belgium was in exile in London from 1944 to 74, 30 years. Later, he taught it to me when I was U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and he was serving as the Belgian Ambassador to NATO. And over the years, I've played it, found it to be challenging, difficult, uh, strategic, and enjoyable. I, I decided that it's such a good game, it would be a shame if it were lost to the ages. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've taught it to a few people, but... Of course, back when I learned it, uh, such things as iPhones and iPads and computers really weren't used. They didn't exist, some of them, and others weren't used much. Today, it's a, it's a game that can be played on an iPad. Of course, my background, I've been, not well, not a technical person. I've been involved in technical matters uh, in the military, the Department of Defense. At, at G.D. Searle, when I was there, we made CAT scanners and Fogamma cameras and ultrasound machines. And then at General Instrument, we, uh, we made satellite links and converter boxes for cable television. Uh, so I've been interested in the technology side. But um, a friend of mine said, well, let's do it. So we did it. And it's been a lot of fun. And, and I'm just delighted that so many people around the world are, are now playing the game and enjoying it just as I have for so many decades. When you see things like, you know, because now you've sort of, you know, been talking to some of the leaders in, in, in technology in Silicon Valley, when you hear things like artificial intelligence or virtual reality or self-driving cars or sort of, you know, where the future is going, as someone who's seen so much of the past, both in government and in the private sector, what does that make you think? Does it make you excited? Does it make you worried? Does how do you think process it? Well, it's life. Things evolve. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was the Department of Defense, Defense Advanced Research and Development Unit, DARPA, that uh, actually developed portions of what became the Internet uh, as a result of their desire to have scientists be able to talk together. And uh, there's so been, when I grew up, of course, uh, we played with marbles and magnets, <laughs> and, and we, we didn't play with apps and that type of thing. In fact, when I was a youngster, we didn't even have television until, right. oh gosh, right. the 1940s. Um, but I, what do I think about it? I think it's terrific. I think it, it changes things, and we have to adjust and accommodate to it. 
but human beings are are adaptable. We have, you think of all we've done over the the many decades from uh, from walking to horse coats to automobiles and trains and then airplanes. I was into my teens before I had ever been in an airplane, which today, of course, sounds strange and unusual. Yeah, uh, some people say that accelerating rate of technology means that companies like Google and Facebook uh, and Twitter and sort of you know private sector companies have more and more influence over society. Uh, what becomes sort of you know the role of government in a in an age where technology accelerates you know exponentially? Well, of course, the role of government, I assume you're talking about our country uh, yep. as opposed to a dictatorship, mm-hmm. uh, where the role of government stays the same in a dictatorship. In our country, it will evolve because it will be what the people decide it ought to be. Uh, they have the vote. They have the ultimate power of making those decisions and judgments and and listening to different options and different approaches. And it's a wonderful thing because... Uh, I remember I heard a, a speech when I was a senior in college back in 1954. Adlai Stevenson spoke, and he said that the individual citizen has the obligation to help guide and direct the course of government. And that's why I answer your question the way I answered it, that, that government will, will do and be uh, a, basically the American people in a democracy, our democracy, decide they want it to be. The game is focused on on you know on, on Churchill or inspired by Churchill. What is something we don't know about Churchill, or something that society has a common misconception about Churchill or doesn't appreciate as much as they should? I mean, first of all, he was the most important statesman of the last century, and and we think of him. It there's a tendency for images to be polished, but if we go back and think about his career, uh, he had some notable failures, and I, I think that's instructive. Uh, for example, uh, in Gallipoli, he was criticized as First Lord of the Admiralty, I believe, uh, for the conduct of that campaign. Uh, at the end of World War II, he was defeated for public office. Why do I mention that? I mention it because life is not a smooth path upward, even for a a distinguished uh, statesman such as Winston Churchill. And I think people tend to forget that because they just look at the, the high points as opposed to what people learn from actually living and uh, experiencing things and, and succeeding and from time to time not succeeding, failing, if you will. You know, given your own experience as a distinguished statesman, you know, for uh, on s- some things that for example, you wrote the Rumsfeld Rules in, in 1974 about you know, sort of how a philosophy of management in, in, in government at the White House. What over the past 40 years um, have you changed your mind about in terms of government or politics? Or Well, one thing I haven't changed my mind about is, is the, those rules. I wish I'd had them when I was 20 years old. Of course, they're, they're not all Rumsfeld, and, and they're not all rules. A lot of them are our observations about life and the world, and they're by people an awful lot smarter than I am. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's information in there and thoughts that can, can benefit anyone. Uh, but what's changed in the world uh, over the, my lifetime, uh, since the 1970s when I began writing, when I actually wrote Rumsfeld's Rules, what's changed is the degree that our country is interconnected with the rest of the world. 
And there is no question but that back when I was a youngster in the 1930s, those two big oceans we have were thought to be oh, barriers that separated us from much of the world and protected us from much of the, much of the world. Uh, today, with, with instant communications and social media and, and an interconnected economy, uh, we are part of a, a very closely connected world. And therefore, what we do and what we say as an important country in the world uh, doesn't affect just our society and our, the American people. It has an impact in the world. And so, too, what takes place elsewhere in the world has an impact here. Uh, and and the, what's changed is the extent to which that's, that's true, it seems to me. There's a couple, a few prominent thinkers have this belief that in the future, this concept of nationalism will sort of equate with racism. Borders will break down over time, and as the world gets more and more interconnected. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? You would ask me 40 years ago what it would look like today in the year 2016. I couldn't have told you. And by the same token, I can't project out another 40 years. It, it seems to me that the nation-state concept has contributed not to a perfect world, but to a world that permits diversity. If one thinks about a country, each country has a somewhat different circumstance. They have, in many cases, different languages, different cultures, different histories, different neighbors, different political systems, different fears and hopes and, and expectations. Now, that being the case, the fact that there has generally, broadly been a great degree of tolerance for those differences, that has contributed to not a perfect world, as I say, but a, a relatively stable world. To the extent one decides that they should break down those separations among nations and, and imposes something other than diversity, I think a great deal would be lost because out of the diversity in the world come different ideas, different inventions, different experiences, and and I think it's been generally a very positive thing that the world has been ordered or reasonably ordered by the nation-state concept. What's something uh, that you're proud about in, in your career that, that people either don't know about you or doesn't get as much uh, attention? Oh my goodness. I, I, uh, I suppose one thing that people don't know is back in, oh, I guess it was 1970 or 71, the Secretary of Treasury was John Connolly and he talked Richard Nixon, the president, into imposing wage and price controls on the American people. They, they were passed into law by a Democratic Congress. Senator Proxmire basically authorized wrote a bill to authorize the president to impose wages and prices, thinking that Nixon would never do that. And all of a sudden, John Connolly talked Richard Nixon into implementing wages and prices. I was asked by George Schultz, the Secretary of the Treasury, a question, I think Director of OMB at that time, but later Secretary of Treasury and Secretary of State, to uh, manage the economic stabilization program. I personally, I told him I didn't believe in wage price controls by the federal government. He said he understood that, and therefore I would be best at managing them. So what, what we did that was of great benefit to the country that nobody knows about is we did not uh, aggressively 
implement wages and price controls. What we did was we ex uh, let a whole group of companies out, the smaller and medium-sized companies. Uh, we didn't have any permanent employees. We detailed them from other departments and agencies, thinking that, therefore, there'd be no group body of people who would want to perpetuate their activities in a big bureaucracy. And third, we required that every regulation that was imposed by the Wage Commission, the Price Commission, the Rent Control Board, the Health Commission, all of those had to be put on the wall in the conference room so we all would look at them every day and know what damage could be done to the American economy. I say all this with a bit of a smile because what we ultimately were able to do was to get rid of the wage price controls because, in my view, it was a very bad decision to impose them in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is something I'm, something I'm curious about. As a, as a young entrepreneur... Uh, you know, this podcast is sort of, you know, an opportunity to talk to various distinguished and successful people and, and sort of, uh, you know, get their retrospectives on, on how they view their own career, but also, uh, you know, things they would have done. I'm curious, just, you know, you've seen so many successful people on, in the private sector and in the public sector, and you yourself also in both sectors. When you think of the term success and, and what it means to you, who, who, who comes to mind and why? The name that comes to mind in terms of an American would be uh, George Schultz. George Schultz was a, uh, at the University of Chicago School of Business, and President Nixon picked him to be Secretary of Labor. He went on to be a Director of the Office of Management of Budget, then he was Secretary of Treasury. He went off and became President of Bechtel Company, a construction company. Later, he was Secretary of State for President Reagan. Uh, and, and he is an individual, he's alive, he's in his 90s, and he is a, was a, a superb public servant, in my view, and would have made a very fine president. Um, but he, he was not political in any sense, and one day he said to me he really didn't have the ability to call attention to himself. And of course, a political figure has to have that ability to call attention to himself. But he was a... Uh, a, a man of towering integrity, is a man of towering integrity, and enormous skill and significant success both in the public and private sectors. What does success mean to you going forward, or what are some, some things that you feel you haven't yet done that you, that you want to uh, you know, achieve or accomplish or, or, or finish in some sense? You know, where, where are your priorities going forward? Well, one of the things I want to do is to... Uh, write a book on Gerald R. Ford. If you think back, never in our country's history except one time has a person served as President of the United States who never ran for President, wasn't ever elected Vice President or President. And in, in that period, in August of 1974, when we had had a resignation of a Vice President, a resignation of a President, Gerald R. Ford became president, and it was a time of, of danger for the country in terms of stability. It was a time of uncertainty in the world, and we had a man who had never sought that office, therefore he was not known to the American people. He was not well known to the world as a, an American leader, and he was a legislator. He'd never served in an executive position, and yet he was a person of... Uh, towering integrity, 
had uh, basic human decency and Midwestern uh, approach to the world where he fundamentally liked people and people reciprocated. Uh, and and it, it, he steadied the ship of state uh, at, a, at a time that was turbulent and, and of considerable risk to the country. And how fortunate our country was that a person of, with his qualities and, and his characteristics and, and his steadiness of purpose happened to be the person who was selected as vice president and then became president, having never run. And I, I, I was first served as the uh, chairman of his transition to the presidency at his request. And then I served as his White House Chief of Staff and later Secretary of Defense for the country. But it was, um, it was a terribly difficult time. And he was the only president of all the five or six that I've worked with uh, who was a personal friend because we'd served together in the Congress. And I've been uh, working slowly but, but steadily on a book about him and about those times which I hope never occur in our country's history again, where there's double resignations of a president and a vice president. And it's a, it's, it's a time that I suppose at 83, I'm one of the few people still alive who was there and intimately involved and could do the book. It seems, you know, looking at the sort of political landscape today, it seems that integrity in the, sen- in the way that you define it was, was, a, uh, was more of a public good or more publicly appreciated or expected in those days. Is, do you think that's the case? I really don't know. For me, if you have a free system, a free leader, a leader in a free system leads not by command, but by consent. And that, to, that means you've got to be persuasive. And to be persuasive, you have to be believed. And to be believed, you have to be trustworthy. You have to have integrity. And it seems to me that there's nothing more corrosive of democracy than corruption or untruthfulness. Governing is hard. It isn't easy. And everyone has an opinion about it. And, and the media looks at it and, and, and comes up with every criticism known to man. And that's okay. But, but in, a, in a process where people run around yelling that everyone's corrupt, and they're not being required to show what is corrupt and see that what's corrupt is stopped is unfortunate, it seems to me, because it lessens trust without real basis. Now, to the extent there's corruption or wrongdoing or untrustfulness, people ought to be punished and thrown out of office or not elected to office. Fair enough. But to, the, to, to, to just heave those charges around blindlessly, and, and mindlessly, uh, without support, it seems to me is unfortunate because it causes people to question something that maybe doesn't merit being questioned. My guess is that human beings are human beings, and there has been corruption and wrongdoing in the past and untruthfulness, and there is today and there will be tomorrow. What's important is that the American people make a choice among the various choices they have and see that they select people who are have the kind of integrity that a Gerald R. Ford has. As someone who's seen so many you know, great elections, when, when you look at this one, or even just the political landscape today, are you just as excited t- 
today as you as you have been in in previous elections? I'm certainly as interested as I have been since I first left the Navy in 1957 and was involved in my first congressional campaign, helping a a congressman run for office back in 1968. I've been interested in the process every two, four years of my lifetime. And uh, I've seen it change with the advent of television and and the increasing importance of money in, in a campaign. I'm, I'm always hopeful. I guess I've, I've, I'm from the Midwest, and I've, I'm always looking ahead and thinking that, that things are going to sort out and that, that at the right moment people will do the right thing, that, that if they are concerned about the courts of the country, they'll get out of their chairs and go out and help somebody who believes they believe merits their help, their assistance, and be supportive of that person and stand up and say they're for that person and that their judgment will be basically right. And to the extent someone doesn't merit support, they'll oppose that person and, and, and replace that person with someone better, someone that they have more hope will do the right thing on behalf of this great country. That's a, that's a great note. If you can go back in time to you when you were uh, you know, 30 years old, what advice, whether it's personal or professional or broadly related to life, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? you feel good about doing. Do what you, you believe in your tummy is, is something that you'll enjoy because if you do what you enjoy, you'll probably do it with greater enthusiasm and greater energy and dedication. Second, don't be afraid to do something different. Uh, it is very easy to become comfortable in what you're doing. And the truth be known throughout my life, each time I've done something quite different, move from the Navy to the a legislative branch, the legislative branch, the executive branch, the executive branch to the private sector, to foreign policy, to defense issues. Every time I've done that, I've looked back and felt that I've learned by kind of triangulating and experiencing different things. And last, I would strongly suggest that people do things with people they respect and who, uh, who are intelligent and who are honorable because they'll get up every day wanting to go to work and be proud of what they're doing, and they'll meet other people who are of a time, because the truth is, A's hire A's and B's hire C's. Absolutely. And how about your 60-year-old self? And I ask 60 because a lot of people you know, reach a certain age and think they're past their prime, but you know, as, as you're proving with this, the, with this app and with everything you've done, I mean, you're consistently innovating. So what would you go back in time and tell your 60-year-old your self? Well, I think what we all have to recognize is that with each generation, we're benefiting from the discoveries, the innovation that are taking place in, in, in healthcare, in, in the pharmaceutical business. People are living longer lives, they're living better lives, healthier lives. And how people pace themselves in prior generations is really not relevant in this generation and will very likely, what's going on in this generation will not be necessarily instructed for the future generations. So I would suggest that people not get it in their mind that at a certain age they they should do this or they should step aside or they should retire or, or they should stop skiing or whatever it may be. I think that, that we have to expect that we're all benefiting from longer lives. The life expectancy today for people is much greater. 
and and we have access to so much more technology that we can do an awful lot that we never could even think of doing back in earlier generations. Let's just say, hypothetically, technology existed that could allow you to live, you know, a hundred more years. Uh, how, how would you think about that? I don't think I would. What you have to do is get up every day and, and do your best and and to, to not limit yourself and to think of the people who've done things in dif- difficult circumstances all across the globe that uh, are unusual and that contribute. I guess I think it's important to, to live today and, and to live it well and to try to serve and, and to uh, be a better person in your own life. The, uh, the app is Churchill, uh, Churchill Solitaire. Um, it is fantastic. I was playing with it earlier. Uh, and it's a true honor to, to talk to you. Well, I'm in, in a wonderful position because I can shamelessly promote a Churchill Solitaire because <laughs> the Churchill, any money the Churchill heritage people receive goes to the legacy of Winston Churchill. And any money that I receive from the profits, if there are any, out of the Churchill Solitaire are going to military charities and that support the troops families 